Welcome to Doctor Informed, brought to you by the BMJ and made in collaboration with this institute, sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed aims to take you beyond medical knowledge. We're talking about all the things that you need to be a good doctor, but which don't necessarily involve clinical medicine. I'm Clara Munro. I'm a general surgical registrar in the northeast of England, and I also work as a clinical editor at the BMJ. In this episode, we'll be talking about speaking out. Uh, we've talked about how to do it um, from Bill Kirkup and Henrietta Hughes in our last episode. But knowing how doesn't necessarily always make it easier to do. To help us explore that today, we're joined again by Mary Dixon Woods and by Zoe Fritz. So, Mary, would you like to start by introducing yourself? Hello there, Clara. Lovely to see you again. I'm Mary Dixon Woods. I'm the director of the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute at the University of Cambridge. Thank you. Thank you, and it's lovely to see you again. Um, and Zoe, do you want to give our listeners a brief insight into who you are and what you do? Hi, my name is Zoe Fritz. I'm a consultant physician at Cambridge University Hospitals and a welcome fellow in society and ethics at this institute at Cambridge. Lovely, and thank you so much both for joining us. Um, so in our last episode, um, on one hand, we had Bill talk about how important it is to speak out um, and the effect that that has on patient safety when people don't do it or don't do it soon enough. Um, we also talked to Henrietta Hughes, who went through with us some of the organisational barriers um, to speaking out um, or organisational ways that that could be done better. Um and she acknowledges that while lots of efforts have been done to improve how we do that, um, there is still a lot of work to be done. Um, in my reflections with Aisha Ashmore, who um, is one of another clinician who works in Obzingaini, we talked about how sometimes talking up, uh, speaking up about patient safety can feel like this huge thing to do. Um, and actually, you're not sure if the thing that you've witnessed or the series of things that you've witnessed necessarily warrants it. Um, And that can feel like a bit of a judgment call for an individual. Um, I wondered if, um, probably starting with Mary, but both of you are, I'm sure, going to have lots of reflections on this, um, and maybe offer some insight about whether your research has uncovered practical solutions um, to to that particular issue. Thanks very much, Clara. Um, I'm going to start by describing the concept of a voiceable concern, which I think will really help with thinking through some of these reasons why it's not always quite as straightforward as it looks to call something out. And the idea behind a voiceable concern is that it really isn't always completely clear that something is a concern. And it's also not always clear that it's something we should give voice to. And there are four components to a voiceable concern that we identified in a paper we just published recently in the Journal of Health Services Research and Policy. The four components are um, whether it is a system issue or a conduct issue, um, whether it is forgivable, uh, whether it is normalised, and whether you are certain something is wrong. I'll just say a little bit about... um, certainty something is wrong and then I'd I'd really love Zoe to comment on this as well. So one of the things we've identified in our research is, and and this is extensive qualitative research with many different kinds of people working in many different kinds of healthcare organisations, is that sometimes you can feel a bit troubled by something you're seeing or hearing, but you're not really sure that it's, that there really is something wrong. 
And uh, that may be because you haven't got the clinical knowledge to figure it out, or there may be something else going on. But but it's it's not always completely obvious this is something wrong or something about to go wrong. And we'd mm-hmm. like to hear what Zoe's experience of this issue is. So I guess I, I like your your categorization, and I I would I would hone in on the one that you said was normalization, because I think the thing that's hardest to challenge is when everyone is doing exactly the same thing. And that can be in a systems way, because that's the way it's always been done. It can be in a language way. So there's all kinds of language we use, which is perhaps problematic. Um, And it can be in a way that we deal with each other or in a hierarchy, so as a team, or in the way that we as clinicians deal with patients. And all of those things can lead to safety issues. And I think they're the hardest to challenge. Great. Um, I wondered about this issue of when you're... Um, uncertain something is wrong just from a clinical point of view and some of the examples that were given to us in our research was when a procedure was being done in a particular way and you're just not sure that 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 is Mm. the way to do it you might have seen it done some some differently somewhere else but you're just not sure and I I wonder Clara this is probably something you see a lot because surgeons don't always do the same procedures the same way Um, is is that something you've come across that you think oh that, that looks a little bit funny but I'm not quite sure yeah, I think we talk about this a lot in surgery because quite often we're operating in a literally operating in a bit of an evidence vacuum. So you're there and you're seeing someone do something and you think is this really dangerous or is this just quite an interesting novel way of doing it? And certainly, you know, I'm I'm still fairly junior in my training, but when I was, you know, even more junior, I thought I just don't have the clinical knowledge or competency to know if this is something dangerous that I should be telling somebody about or or if this is someone just doing something slightly different so I think that's a really good example and and then I I was also wondering about this issue Zoe's emphasized that things can be normalized um, and that's certainly been something we we've found many times so basically this is how things are done around here and when somebody is is watching it, they think, well, why why do people think this is okay? Um, but it, but everybody else seems to think it's okay. And and over time, you can actually get kind of socialized into thinking this is okay too. Uh, so so there's that question, and it, it, it's been discovered in many different industries actually that maybe somebody made a little mutation at some point in a procedure because it gets things done quicker. And maybe it's not perfect, but it kind of gets normalized over time. And sometimes that's a procedural thing and sometimes it's a behavioral thing. And that's Mm. quite important to us. So one example of a procedural thing was uh, that we were given in our research was a way of handling blood transfusions. And when somebody came in from another hospital, they were they were kind of going, why are they doing this? But, But everyone else seemed to think this was okay. And actually within two months, the process had led to an adverse event. So it wasn't right, but but they felt uncomfortable about challenging it because everybody else seemed to think it was okay. So again, I'd be interested, Zoe, is this the kind of thing you meant? And Clara may have some comments too. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, uh, I'll just, I'll link back to the uncertainty as well, because there's the individual uncertainty. There's the like, do I know whether this is the right thing or not? And then there's the evidence-based uncertainty. Does anyone know whether this is the right thing or not? Is there enough evidence to know it? And and often those two get elided, especially as a junior doctor, but even as a consultant, you suddenly have all the knowledge. So you're like, 
well, I haven't read all the evidence. Maybe somewhere there's a paper saying this is the right way to do things. And, you know, maybe maybe they're basing it on a really careful discussion. And actually, I think the scariest thing is that quite often it isn't based on any evidence at all. Both the way we do things procedurally and the way we interact and all the rest of it. It's just learnt behaviour from what everyone else is doing. And I think one of the biggest challenges, and I give this to the medical students every year, is to challenge the behaviours that everyone else has normalised and to say, how can we do this better? What is it that feels a bit wrong? Um, And it may be as you change institutions, because there's huge heterogeneity in how not even just different institutions work, but how different wards work. People develop their own patterns. So I guess there is a strength in going from place to place, so long as you then question what the difference is, because then you can say, well, it can't possibly be that there is an evidence base for this because that's not what was happening at place Y. So it's not just my uncertainty, it's a greater uncertainty that's going on. And therefore, let's try and find some answers and let's gather evidence about what the best way is of doing this. Mary, when you um, kind of looked at these factors um, about you know, how to decide whether something's a voiceable concern or not. Were there certain, I don't know, were there certain things where you could say, yes, that is definitely a voiceable concern or maybe there's more of a grey area or no, it isn't a voiceable concern. Does it have a practical implication, I guess, is what my question is. That's a really important question. What we were trying to do with that particular piece of work or characterise what were the influences and whether somebody recognised something was a concern and then... It's essentially determined that it was up to them to voice the concern. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in Zoe's comments because it's, it's quite right that in medicine, it's, it's a constantly evolving evidence area. And sometimes there just genuinely is uncertainty about um, the right thing to do. I think some of our uncertainty was about what was normal in this situation. Like, would it be normal for a patient to have that amount of pain during the, pro- the procedure? Sometimes it was a kind of... Um, what appeared to be neglect of, of a patient's experience um, that, 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 that felt too uncomfortable to the people watching it. And they, again, just weren't sure whether this, this, was, this was a real concern or, or, or whether it was just a kind of, that is just the way you respond to that particular process. But I, I guess there's some things, and, and I think it is a continuum, Clara. I don't think there is clarity and we'll ever be able to draw rules about this. But I'm, I'm thinking back to an example, which wasn't something we discovered in our research, but it happened um, some years ago in Oxford, um, um, a very well publicized case where um, a, a, an operation on a child resulted in a death. And this was a situation where the um, pr- procedure that was used involving a morselator that was borrowed from an adult ward um, was used. and. Subsequently, the people involved in the operation essentially questioned whether why they ever thought this was the right thing to do. Mm. And I, 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 I'd be really interested from Zoe and Clara's point of view what what you felt you would have done in that situation where there was something that really looked kind of distinctly odd and not part of a, a normal plan. How how confident you would feel as a junior person in in, in speaking up about that? I suppose. It's often about that continuum that you mentioned before. So, you know, if I saw someone 
injecting potassium chloride into a patient i know categorically that is a bad thing to do and i can say please don't do that um and i can stop it and you would speak up immediately in that situation and then there's this huge kind of scale of gray in the middle all the way down to the stuff where you know actually we see lots of near misses so i know we talk about near misses in medicine um you know, there's a near miss where sometimes I, you know, put orange juice into my coffee instead of milk. Would I report that? Probably not, you know. And and there are kind of things like that that happen in clinical work as well. But it's the grey area in the middle. And I think that that's an example where if you're junior and your boss says to you, oh, no, no, this is something that we do. And you say, can you talk me through that? You know, can you educate me as to why we're using this uh, piece of equipment in a child rather than an adult? If they give you a reasonable explanation and you don't feel like you have the clinical knowledge to, uh, I suppose, to challenge that, then genuinely I probably would say, okay. Um, But whether that's the right thing or not and whether I would only know if that was the right thing retrospectively, I suppose is, is the real challenge with those situations. There's so much I want to come in on that. That was, so I love the way you said, can you teach me about this? Because I think that's a really <laughs> elegant way of saying, you know, I'm not comfortable with this and I need to understand more, but I'm recognizing that I'm uncertain and I don't know if it's my personal uncertainty or the evidence base, you know, tell me about this. This is, I'm a trainee, you know, it's such a perfect way of challenging what's going on. Um, and I think the other thing that came from what we were just talking about was the differences and, and, and I guess just highlighting the complexity of what we're doing, because there's the kind of safety issues of equipment that we're often not that familiar with, especially if you're going into a different area. So I can take from my personal experience, we had a, a new connector for the Venflons in the hospital that meant that in an emergency, you couldn't attach the adrenaline in a, in a CPR attempt. And I raised that. But I mean, I was able to raise that because I was on the recess committee. So I was like, mm, I think this might be a problem that this you need an extra connector. Um, there's, you know, there's the issues of um, actually talking through what the procedure you're about to do is going to entail. So obviously the WHO surgical safety checklist is somewhere where maybe that might have been picked up. You know, are there any concerns about what we're about to do and having creating that kind of open conversation when you're about to do a really complicated procedure of is there anything anyone's worried about and creating that environment, I think would have helped would have helped there i think something to pick up on from what uh, zoe has said is that i think this distinction between a system issue and a conduct issue is quite important as well um Mm. and people actually found it much more easy to raise issues about systems you gave the venflon examples and we, we you know people don't feel that bothered about raising issues about you know not being able to get hold of the um key to the control drugs cabinet or you know, drugs not arriving on time or getting lost. They they felt reasonably comfortable about raising those. Uh, What they were much less comfortable about was raising issues about the conduct of their colleagues. And again, this is why I'd love the comments of uh, Clara and Zoe. So, So sometimes the issue is presented as a kind of straightforward one of hierarchy, that it's hard to speak up in the hierarchy. And that is absolutely true. But we have found equal issues with um, speaking out about your peers because it can feel like a betrayal or you you just don't understand what's going on. And that sense that you're kind of breaking ranks with your peer group or your cohort uh, can feel very, very uncomfortable. And speaking down also can be very uncomfortable because people are very anxious about appearing to be bullying. Uh, They're very anxious about uh, challenging groups who may be in other ways and so on. And so so all of these discomforts um, add up 
And uh, I, I think this this idea that it's all about hierarchy doesn't help us. I think it's acknowledging the range of, of things useful here. So again, I, I'd love your comments on, on how this feels in practice. As soon as you started talking about the speaking down as well as speaking up, I was thinking of all these examples in my head, which have kind of happened recently where I think, do I say something? Do I not? I think that that's a huge challenge. Uh, and I think that often people won't report it in quite the same way as they would report a problem with a Venflon. They would rather speak to the individual, um, which can be incredibly hard. And it's actually the subject of one of our other episodes. Um, but yeah, I don't, know if, I don't know if you've had the same... I'm interested as a consultant, so if you feel like there's almost more of a responsibility to, to uh, speak out about, you know, people within the hierarchy about individuals i i don't think anyone has any difficulty reporting if they really saw something terrible like you were saying it's a gradient so you would know when you absolutely had to call out but you know if one of your colleagues is being a bit more lazy than others or you know someone's taking less time on the post take round well who's to say that um that's something to call out maybe they're just more efficient than you you know it's very very hard i think to pick up on each other's behavior because we're not watching each other anymore um, so I don't know, I don't know how easily that happens. I'm very lucky. I, I think I think one of the great reasons to do medicine is that pretty much everyone you're working with is nice and well motivated and wants the best for patients. That's one of the beauties of, of of being a doctor, I think. But I do think we all become a bit inured to bad practice or what is acceptable practice. And as I say, that's on lots of different levels. And I think I think that's a bigger challenge. Um, how we how we create an environment where we can do that, as you say, not just on the practical or equipment things where it's very straightforward to fill out an instant report and and tick a box but actually on behavioral stuff and on I think the other thing we started talking about was on when a change happens so we've had changes in COVID we've had changes in IT systems so actually you know new big things happen in the hospital not not necessarily based on very much evidence how do you make challenges to those as you watch everyone's behavior changing and as those those things have both intended and unintended effects. And how do you even measure them, Mary? Indeed, indeed. <laughs> absolutely. And I'm, I'm interested, the conversation there was very much doctor to doctor. And um, so what we've picked up is a discomfort about speaking to other professional groups, um, could be pharmacists, could be nurses, and um, that, that, that that could be interpreted as bullying or breaking, again, going beyond boundaries and so on. And I'm just thinking of one example we were given, which was... Um, involving a cleaner who was using the same floor to the same cloth to mop the floor and the patient's um, trays. And it was noticed by somebody and they, they they were very uncomfortable about calling it out, but it clearly was something that could pose a danger to, to patients. So again, I'd just love to know what you would do based on that scenario. Gosh, that's... I'm going to pass that one over to Zoe. That's easier, isn't it? I'm just going to give that to someone else. I I think I would go in that context to the nurse in charge of the mm. ward and ask who I needed to speak to. I don't think I'd any, have any problem doing that, actually. So I think I would just go to the nurse in charge and say, who is it I speak to? And and I know, I mean, I know in our hospital who the um, domestic supervisor is. So I, I would be able to, personally, I would be able to go to the domestic supervisor. But if you didn't know that, I'd just go to the nurse in charge of the ward and say, who should I speak to about this? Um, and and similarly, I have had an issue, for example, um, with a nursing colleague who I was concerned about. I think the first 
the first instinct is to say, well, you're concerned about them. What's going on? Why are they not able to take pride in their job? What's, you know, what's the problem? So I was concerned about this nursing colleague and went to the senior nurse. So I think there is a reasonable kind of line management. You can find the right person. Do you think you would, would that be different if it was another doctor? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I would absolutely feel totally comfortable and challenging another doctor. And if they were and again this has happened so for example uh, someone from a different speciality I might speak to them and then I might also speak I would also speak to their educational supervisor so there was some record of it so that in their consultant group meeting they knew Mm. what had happened Um, but I would always speak to them directly. So I want to talk a bit more about that but first here's a message from our sponsor. At Medical Protection we're different with no financial caps or limits on the protection we offer members. We take a discretionary approach to providing assistance. This flexibility lets us help where other providers may not. Treating cases on their individual merits and adapting to a wider range of situations. As a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation, we exist to support your professional interests and protect your finances, career and reputation. Our doctor-to-doctor support and advice can help you navigate the way, whatever lies ahead. Plus, the number of times you contact our helpline won't affect what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org uk. As we're talking about this, Mary, especially in the context when we, you know, as we talk about individuals, I'm thinking more and more about the start of this conversation where you talked about, is it forgivable? Mm. How does that come in? That's a great question. And some of your listeners will be familiar with the brilliant work of Charles Bosk, which goes back to the 1970s and was an ethnography of surgery um, in the US. And the book is called Forgive and Remember. And the the kind of ethos at the time was that it was okay to make mistakes kind of once, um, but you have to remember them and not not make them again. And and they they go into some depth about what's a forgivable mistake. So, for example, it's forgivable to make a procedural error the first time you do an operation because you have to learn how to do it. But the point is, you can't make it another time. You have to you have to remember to learn from it. And I've always been really intrigued by that um, that 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 concept. And we've we've spent a lot of time thinking about forgivability, and we're just really interested that it then appeared when we were doing this work on voiceable concerns. And again, it's it's to what your point, Clara, about the spectrum of these things, and it's it's never entirely clear. But one of the um, one of the things that kept coming up was basically people whose behavior interpersonal behavior just wasn't always that nice and I remember one person saying it's not that they were throwing things around the operating theater they were just snarky and you know this kind of edge to their voice and it's just never never comfortable kind of Mm. and then they would say something like but on the other hand they've been up all night um you know they're, they're desperate for a cup of tea in bed and maybe it's okay that they they were like that this morning and it, it was that sense that you know maybe there was some excuse for it maybe it it maybe 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 it was the first time they did that thing maybe they they'd had a bad day it was that kind of thing and I, I again I, I was just really intrigued by it this this concept of forgivability what, what can you forgive 
and therefore not speak out about. Mm. Yeah, I I think that's so fascinating. I think so much of that is reliant on, um, I suppose, having a, a human relationship with the people that you work with, because you only know those things, really, if you work with those people. And interesting that you should talk about that in the context of uh, of, of surgery. I interclated in anthropology and that was one of the texts that I looked at. And actually, I wasn't interested in surgery at the time, but I reflect back on that a lot, um, that particular medical ethnography, because I think so much about the way that we respond to each other and the way that we respond to our colleagues ends up being about how well we know them so and that level of forgivability um is probably calibrated depended on depending on how well you know someone so I have a colleague who's quite deaf so when I first worked with him I was like why is he always so shouty in theatre and you know I thought it was really rude but as I got to know him I realised he just couldn't hear me so he wasn't shouting at me because he was angry he was shouting at me because you know, when there's beeping and, you know, the anaesthetist is talking to the trainee and the nurse is talking about something else and somebody's rustling a packet in the background, he shouts because that's how he communicates. I think you probably change that level of forgivability. And actually, as trainees, we don't see our bosses as often as we used to. Not having that as much, you know, not having that firm structure that we used to have. Maybe that calibration doesn't doesn't quite work in the same way. Maybe that level of forgivability ends up being lower because we actually don't know our team as much as we used to. So I think there's definitely something about forgivability and repetition. So, you know, you can forgive someone for doing something once or maybe even twice, or maybe even three times, but if they're doing the same thing again and again, and it's clearly causing either distress to each other, so back to the interprofessional, or it's causing mistakes, or you're having to go back and deal with the fact that the patient didn't understood what the person said because they didn't take long enough, which is massively a safety issue, just back on to calling people out. If people aren't communicating well, and patients don't understand what their diagnosis is or what the treatment is or when they need to come back. That's a significant safety issue and, and one that I think we forgive way too readily because we think that's normalized. But anyway, so if someone does something once or twice or three times, but if they're doing it regularly, it becomes unforgivable. And then I think the other thing is intent. And it's obviously very difficult to mm. disentangle what someone's intent is. But if someone's intent is good, but they make a mistake or they've misunderstood what someone else wants, then I think it's very forgivable. You know, if someone's trying to come up with a better way of doing surgery and they think they've looked at all of the evidence and then it turns out not to be, that's very different than if they just chance it. The intent is is really important and, and, if, and the care with which someone does something. So again, if someone's doing something new, but they go through all the attempts to try and make sure that it's safe and it still goes wrong, that's very forgivable rather than if someone is just slapdash and does something differently. I don't think I can come up with a good way for forgiving someone mopping someone's patient tray with the same thing they mopped the floor. I think, <laughs> I think once that's really not good enough. <laughs> I, I I want to move on a little bit. Um, just I suppose the just bringing the idea of voiceable concern into how practically we apply that or the practical effect of having a voiceable concern uh, and not voicing it might be. Um, And I know that you've both, you know, done a huge amount of work on the idea of uh, moral discomfort and potential subsequent moral injury. Um, And I think that the pandemic has obviously shone a huge light on 
magnified some of the problems that have been going on for a long time. And I think people are talking more about this idea now. I wonder how much you think or how much your research has shown, um, if it has shown, that this sort of living in that grey area of thinking, should I speak out? I'm not sure that this is right. I'm not sure that um, we're doing the right thing for patients. How much that has an effect on moral discomfort and moral injury? Great questions, uh, Clara. And I think uh, everyone will confirm that the pandemic has amplified an awful lot of these issues because in a funny kind of way, they've made system issues more forgivable, mm. appear more forgivable because everyone has got into this kind of emergency mode of thinking, well, we just have to roll with it and that this is the best we can do for now. And one of the most distressing um, projects I've been involved in in the last couple of years was a study we did um, that involved mental health care workers during the pandemic. And they were faced with the horrendous situation where it was very, very difficult to offer the care to people that they needed at a time when people's mental health needs, and we're talking about people with serious mental illness, um, their, 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 their needs were intensifying and yet services had to contract. Uh, they couldn't admit people to hospital because of infection control risk and they were having to discharge people early and many other services were essentially shut down. And staff experienced massive moral injury as a result of this because they, they, they just knew they weren't looking after people in the way that they, they needed to be looked after. And it, it was also very, even though it was a system issue, it was also quite difficult to speak up about because it wasn't clear what the solution was going to be. And I don't think there are any easy answers to any of this stuff. Um, I, 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 and th there may be a, a, a case for kind of trying to co-create solutions. We haven't done that research yet, but I, 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 again, this is something where I feel listening to people about what might be the solutions in a situation where you're faced with moral injury um, and um, where the responsibility in the system lies for trying to, to fix some of these. I, again, I just love to, to hear your views on this. So I think uh, being aware that you are struggling with something and that there is a moral dilemma that you're dealing with, whether that be the best way of dealing with a new rule that <clears throat> visiting is limited and you think actually patients really need visitors, or whether it's an individual case, or even whether it's whether you speak up about a safety issue. I think having the language to recognise those things is really important. And then having a framework by which you can discuss them is really important. And so I think one of the roles for clinical ethical advisory groups or clinical ethics groups in hospitals and other institutions is actually to help people have that language and have a forum to be able to discuss them so that you basically lower the threshold for discussing it mm. so that it's not just your problem that you're going home with and thinking about or waking up with in the middle of the night, but that you have a way of saying, okay, here is the issue who are the people this affects or who are the different groups this affects? How can we find out how that can be changed? What are the pressures on this? What are the ethical principles we're going to be dealing with? So, you know, how can we make it equitable? How can we make it sustainable? All of those, all of those things. Um, so that, so that doctors become, we're all, we all have to be slightly philosophers, I think, in being able to deal with these moral dilemmas and, and equipping people with languages is one of the ways I think of reducing the moral injury that is inevitable if you have to deal with the moral dilemma on your own. So we're not going to get rid of moral dilemmas and we're not going to get rid of uncertainty, but can we reduce the moral injury by helping equip people to talk about it and 
and having a framework to be able to come to some conclusions is not the same as following a resuscitation algorithm where you do A if this and B if it's this, whatever. It's not It's not like that. And, and as medics, I think we're taught an awful lot of protocols, aren't we, and an awful lot of algorithms. And so this is actually teaching us how to think slightly differently. And I think it's a really important skill that we need to have from the beginning and then keep on revisiting. And I think it's a responsibility of institutions to equip us with that. Mm. I think that that goes right back to my initial reflection from the last episode when I was talking to Aisha about it, was that that sense of kind of living in this, that grey area of being like, do I speak up in capital letters about this thing that, you know, maybe I would only know if it was important retrospectively. Um, But actually having a forum to explore that contemporaneously rather than you know after the fact I think is hugely powerful I really like this idea actually because I think maybe uh, when you were asking me Clara what's the practical I'm not sure I can turn this can't be turned into as as Zoe says it, it just doesn't lend itself to being turned into an algorithm and if you can rate your certainty as seven out of ten then do this it's never going to be like that and I really like this suggestion that actually it's a more dialogic, reflective process. Mm. We need to respond to some of these. And I, we have seen some really great examples like Schwartz rounds, um, which are being used very successfully um, in the NHS. I like Zoe's idea that there might be ethics committees who can help with it. And I, I think creating these fora and dialogues and having ways of thinking about them and also just realising sometimes you're not the only person who's who's experiencing this and everybody else is having the same kind of uncertainty, discomfort, and and that can sometimes be calming in its own right. And also just figuring out answers together rather than than trying to do it all by yourself. I really like that that emphasis. There's a kind of almost an encouragement to question something and a way of normalizing the questioning. And this is actually quite well studied in uh, social psychology. So there's a, a phenomenon that is fascinating called the Abilene paradox. And I think all of us will have experienced it at some at some point and this is where everybody goes along with the plan that nobody wants nobody wants because everyone think ev- thinks everyone else wants it and the Abilene paradox is about a terrible <clears throat> road trip that a family went on to have lunch in Abilene and it was hot and dusty and nobody wanted to do it but everyone did it <laughs> afterwards you're thinking not a single person enjoyed that we all went along with it and yet if, if you just had the conversation you're gonna just go hmm Maybe we should just stay at home and have in that house. And I was thinking about um, your work, Mary, on the idea of, of many hands and actually almost having more people involved in patient safety makes people less likely to speak out. I don't know if I've misunderstand that, uh, misunderstood that concept, but I'm, I'd be really interested to hear you explain it. Articulate it better than I can. Sure. No, the concept of the concept of the problem of many hands actually comes from political science, and this is the idea that there are often lots and lots of actors in a system, but no clear authority for resolving a particular problem. And we, we saw that, for example, in relation to something like the Mid Staffordshire um, scandal, where the, there were no shortage of regulators, authorities, groups, and so on. But it just wasn't clear whose job it was to take on coordinating the investigation and response once the concerns had started to be raised. And I I think that happens at all kinds of levels. It just isn't clear whose job it is to sort this out. And what I really like about this, where this conversation has gone, is that we're beginning to move to a sort of collective way of of recognising voiceable concerns Mm. and sharing this as a kind of collective thing. And that might lead to better ways of identifying 
where the responsibility for solving the problem lies. And sometimes the problem is that there isn't, that responsibility has never been located. And so therefore it's not clear whose job it is to sort it out. And almost recognizing that helps you see, you know, we do need to find, we need to, do need to locate this responsibility with somebody, with a body or a group or a person whose job it is to solve it. I see, I see. Now I think that's, that's, that's helpful. And have you ever seen, um, Mary, through any of your research or experience, somewhere where that has been done in the context of patient safety? Or Zoe might be able to come in there as well. <laughs> no. I haven't seen an exact example, but actually I've become quite excited by this conversation. So it feels like something we could that could be the subject of a, a collaboration to build the framework that Zoe is talking about. And it could be junior doctors could be really helpful with, with building that framework, mm. finding a kind of process which could build on existing really, you know, highly effective interventions like Schwartz rounds, but, but takes it through to what are the system improvements. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably a good time to wrap this episode up. I'll let the experts go away and research that new approach. Thank you so much for joining us, Mary and Zoe. Thank you very much, Tara. As always, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. I'm very excited about future possibilities. Next week, having heard about speaking up, we're going to be talking about listening up. As doctors, we're often in a relative position of power in hospitals, and it's important that we make space for people to be able to raise issues. Megan Reitz and John Higgins are joining us to give us some really practical advice on how to do that. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Bye for now.